Our text this morning comes from Exodus chapters 2 and 3, beginning at the end of chapter 2 with verse 23 and then into uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And I should stop and um, sort of explain where we're at. Uh, Exodus, it's those many days, those many days, they're referring to the many days that uh, Moses is in, has been in the wilderness, if you will, with his father-in-law and with his wife. I want to say his new wife, but these many days, it's been 40 years, uh, we understand. Not from this text exactly, but as we read through Exodus, we're sort of filled in on the timeline. 40 years that Moses has been in exile from Egypt. So it's been in those many days that the cry of the Israelites went up. Pharaoh died, and it's important that Pharaoh died because this is the Pharaoh who had begun oppressing them back at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Pharaoh uh, from whom Moses had fled in fear when Moses took his first few steps uh, in erroneously trying to liberate the Israelites from bondage, erroneously because it was not yet time, and he got himself into trouble, and that's why he had to flee to Midian. And so, this has been going on then. To, to clarify, Moses was 40 when he left, when he, when he left Egypt. So if, he's a, if it's been another 40-odd years now that he's been a Midian, he's, he's 80 years old. The oppression that the Israelites have been experiencing has been going on then longer than Moses has been alive, uh, more, more than 80 years. So, so when here he says in verse 23 was those many days means many days, many days of being in slavery and oppression. And when we read that the people of Israel groaned, then the people of Israel groaned. They have been enslaved, and they have been under the control not simply of oppressors, but of a genocidal oppressor. Because, of course, Moses, we all know the story, he got his name Moses because he was hidden in, uh, in a little basket and floated down the Nile River by his mother because the command of Pharaoh was that all Hebrew baby boys should be drowned in the Nile. And he was drawn out from the river, hence his name Moses, which means drawn out. The people groaned because of their oppression, which had been going on for many, many days. And just to give you some sense, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but uh, things have been somewhat politically fraught in our nation for the last few years. And some people, not anybody here, you all are very normal, nice people, but people you might know by a few degrees of separation have been acting a little amped up because they feel that things have been going on for too long. It's not been 80-odd years. It's not been 100 years. And we see people in our time 
feel they can't take it anymore. 80, 80, 100 years, I don't know how long, right, exactly. We don't have dates, the specific dates. It's been a long time. And these are God's people. And they're crying out because they're oppressed and they groan. And this is how God's people respond. Perhaps you have been in this situation where you are immiserated and you cry out, you groan, and you don't hear an answer. And you wonder, is God listening? Does God remember? It's interesting to me, I think back uh, when I was younger, I was in college, and I got involved in the study and art of apologetics, Christian apologetics, which is not apologizing for being a Christian. It's rather apologetics is a technical term for the defense of the faith, uh, defending the faith, which I got to be pretty good at. And it's not that hard because actually it turns out that since everything that Christians believe is true, uh, it's relatively easy to do. But I could argue circles around anybody on the existence of God, the truth of the Bible, etc. Never, never in my time in ministry has that been the question that people have wrestled with. Does God exist? Uh, is the Bible, can I really believe in the authority of the Bible? All those doctrinal, intellectual questions, I'm not dismissing them. Those are important things to believe. They help buttress our faith. The questions the Christians have, the question maybe the Christians have is, how is God allowing this to go on? Why has God done this to me? And why doesn't it stop? Does God remember me? Are his promises true? Those are the questions the Christians wrestle with. Those are the questions which cause Christians to groan. But I hope you can see from our text that the response of faith, beloved, is to groan. It is to cry out, because the Lord does remember. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, 
for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You see, beloved, the covenant Lord remembers when God's people suffer and cry out, the response of faith is to cry out. And it's to cry out, and then to cry out. I don't know what the given terminus is on suffering. In fact, I think we need to wrestle with the reality that there is no time limit on suffering. One of the things that worked its way uh, into my, my thinking, my consciousness over my years in the pastorate was uh, the phrase from 1 Peter chapter 5, which, we, which is part of the charge that we give to people when they join a Presbyterian or Reformed church. Where we say, after you have suffered a little while, you will enter into God's glory. And, and what always struck me with that is that may be the most true thing I've ever said to anybody, because everybody is going to suffer a little while. And that little while is not the little while that you would like it to be. That little while is a little while before you enter into glory, which is to say, your entire life. Our entire life, this side of glory, is a life of suffering. And the only appropriate response to that suffering, no matter how hard it is, and no matter how long it goes on, is to groan and to cry out, to cry out to the Lord for help. I thought that would be smoother. That's what's going to be necessary. That's what is necessary. That's what is necessary, whether the oppression is slavery, disease, relationship, whether it's the government or whether it's your employer. It is to cry out because God remembers His covenant. When we hear that God heard their groaning, it's not that God could not hear. 
rather the point that's being made here, could not hear before and all of a sudden can hear, it's rather that God takes notice of and God determines to act upon. And what God determines to act upon here is his covenant. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And of course, that covenant was really initially made with Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, who's the father of Jacob. And Jacob, of course, is the father of 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, as now those 12 tribes are in their beginning form there in Egypt and are beginning to identify themselves as such as they've grown during their time in Egypt. The promise, the covenant that God made with Abraham is back in Genesis, and it's repeated on several occasions. I'm not going to read all of those different places that God makes the covenant with Abraham. I'm not even going to read uh, all of one of those single accounts, but it's helpful to at least focus in on two particular verses which really do sum up the nature of that covenant. A covenant is an agreement. It's like a legal contract. Uh, Actually, covenant is another word for legal contract, but Covenant sounds more religious, and so that's what we use uh, when we read the Bible. So if we say contract, people would think like we had just a, people would think we were weird, but now they know we're religious because we use the word covenant. So it's, and it's, now now with God, covenant is a good Bible word. I mean, I say that, but that's, that that is, that is true. It's a good Bible word, both in, in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it just means an agreement, and people can make agreements between themselves. It's bound with an oath. And what's interesting about the covenant that God makes with Abraham and therefore with Isaac and Jacob is that it is one-sided. That is, it's not, I will do this and you do that, which is a form that most covenants take. If you read through the Bible, uh, Abraham makes covenants with other powerful men. Uh, And there's, I do this, you do that. That's the nature of most legal contracts. This is one-sided. God makes a promise, and he promises to keep it. And there is no condition on Abraham's part And so the summary of that covenant is Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So you'll notice there, God makes a covenant with Abraham. But he says, it's with you and your offspring, or with you and your seed, uh, as some Bible translations have it. And if it's, with his, if it's with Abraham's offspring, that's why, right? That's why it's a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because those are his descendants. But therefore, it is also then a covenant with the sons of Jacob and the daughters of Jacob as, as, as well. And then it's also then with their descendants, and their descendants just goes on and on and on. God made that covenant, and God remembers that covenant. It's on the basis then of that covenant that God sees these people, because even though they're named Israel, which is a nickname uh, of, of Jacob, the, the, the father of the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes, uh, he is, they are his people. They're the people of Israel, but they are God's people because he's made this covenant. I will be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. It's on the basis of that covenant, that promise that God remembers and that God acts. He does not forget. He is God. And just, so, so when the Bible says God remembers it's not, 
that God needs reminding. But rather it is to say that God always knows and He will hear you. It is not that God does not hear you. He remembers you when you cry out to Him. And so the imperative, the biblical imperative, is to cry out to the Lord. Cry out to God. He has not forgotten you, no matter what you think. Suffering is not the great proof that God has forgotten you. I don't know how many times I've heard that. I don't know how many times you've heard that. Perhaps you've thought that. Perhaps you've said that. How can God have heard me if the suffering goes on? My suffering, my children's suffering, my parents' suffering, my loved one's suffering. In those many days, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery in those many days. Suffering is not proof that God has forgotten you. The Lord remembers. And the only thing for us to do is to continue to cry out. Cry out to God, beloved, because he will remember his covenant with you. The covenant Lord remembers, and therefore the covenant Lord comes down. This is why, there's a reason why I, I, I read, um, or the sermon rather, takes the last few verses of chapter 2 uh, before we go into chapter 3, and that's because we have to see God's appearance to Moses for what it is. When God meets with Moses in chapter 3 to call him to his lifetime of ministry, the rest of his life, he's 80 years old. A lot of you might, who are not yet 80 might have think you've already had a lifetime. Um, he's got more to do. The, when God appears to call him, it is in response to this cry. God acts. God acts. After this very, very, very long time period, the Lord comes to respond. And so it's because the Lord remembers that the covenant Lord comes down. Now, he comes down in fire. It is as Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Uh, he, go, he's, he goes around Mount Horeb, and there is a bush with a flame of fire in it. And what we need to see in that fire is that it is the Holy Spirit who comes down. This is an interesting fire, as, as Moses says. Uh, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. There is a flame in the midst of a bush, but the bush is not consumed. Now, I am, uh, I've, I, I have, so, 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 so like Moses... I have spent, I once came from a fertile land, which is to say the eastern part of the United States, and then sojourned for several decades in a barren and dry place, which is to say the West. And as a Westerner, and living in places like Southern California and, uh, and, and, and the plains of Colorado, 
uh, which are very much like Midian, I am here to tell you that if there's a flame in the midst of a bush, all of California and most of the Intermountain states will burn down in great flame and fury. So when you hear, this is not like Ohio, right? Ohio is a broad and rich land flowing with water coming out of the sky, which is just a really strange phenomenon. And, 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 and Moses has never seen anything like that. So when he says, when he says, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned, you need to understand he's saying that with a really high-pitched voice. He is freaking out. And he's freaking out because this is not a bush burning, even though we call it the burning bush, and the text calls it a burning bush for convenience, because and it's because you have to keep explaining it's a bush in which fire was, but the actual fire was not actual fire fire. It was rather the spiritual fire of the Holy Spirit. It's just way too long to say. So we say the burning bush, but the bush is not on fire because that's not fire. That's rather the place where the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, has manifested himself. This is the same fire, then, that is going to be the pillar of cloud and fire, which leads the Israelites through the wilderness. This is the fire that comes down at Pentecost. As Christians, we need to see, when we see fire in the Bible, we know what that is, because we are the people of fire. We are the people who received the Holy Spirit in fire on the day of Pentecost and have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit ever since. As Presbyterians, we have very carefully controlled fire. You know, it's banked. You've got the stones around it and whatnot. But still, you know, it's still it's, it's fire of, of after fashion. But that's, that's who we are. So, so we need to see then, we need to understand that this is the Holy Spirit who has come down, but with the Holy Spirit, of course, the text tells us, is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Now, when I, and we need to understand, as we look at this text, who this angel is, because this is no mere angel. And that's the phrase I have written in my notes, but every time I read that, he is no mere angel. It just strikes me like that's, that's a really strange statement to make. Because the biblical testimony is that when people see angels, they go, whoa, um, right? No angel is a mere angel. It's, 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 I mean, they're angels. They're holy. They're majestic. They're per perfect. They're full of glory. But the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord is something else altogether. Notice how the text talks about him. How does Moses talk about him? when he writes this text, it is not simply the angel of the Lord there, but then in verse 4, it is when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. It's the Lord who is present there. He identifies himself. He doesn't say the Lord says, but he says, I am. I am the God of your father. Moses worships him. He hides his face. He takes off his shoes and hides his face because he is afraid to look at God. It is God who is present there. It is God who is speaking to him. Verse 7, the Lord said. It is the Lord God himself who is present. But then we need to take that a step further. When we say the Lord is speaking to him in the form of the angel of the Lord, what does that mean? 
Well, it means something very specific. John chapter 1, verse 18. I remember reading this verse, which I had read a half a million times before, but then encountering this verse and understanding the way in which it unlocked so much of the Old Testament for me. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And John 1, 18, of course, is referring to our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No one has ever seen God. Well, who then did people see throughout the Old Testament when they encounter God as Abraham encountered God, as uh, Moses encounters God here, when God speaks to people? It's not God the Father, it is God the Son. And specifically then, because no one has ever seen God, as John says in John 1.18, he's referring clearly to God the Father, who has been made known by the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. It is then very specifically, and is important that we see that it is specifically, that it is God the Son who is now speaking to Moses as the angel of the Lord who has come down in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Son and the Spirit together come down to speak God's word of deliverance, come down to deliver, because it is the Son of God who delivers the people of God. And so it is, as a covenant Lord comes down, that we must understand that in the angel of the Lord, the Son of God himself has come down. This is the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the Lord of the covenant. It is the Lord of the covenant who comes down. He remembers the sons of Israel. He remembers Israel, he remembers the children of Israel because they are the sons of the covenant, and he is bound to help them. Just as they are bound to serve him by virtue of that covenant, just because they belong to him, as he says in verse 12, they have to, they will come out and serve God on this mountain. At the same time, he says, I will be with you and I will bring you out of Egypt. He says that he is the one who will come to deliver. He has bound himself to this people. He calls himself by their name. What's his name? His name is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His name is the God of Israel. That's how he identifies himself. He names himself by the name of his people. This is God's grace. A holy God. A God whose presence makes the ground holy. He is present there, so the ground is holy. And so Moses has to take off his shoes, has to take off his sandals, which have been walking around, and, and who knows what, he's a shepherd. Uh, and so he's got to take them off because the ground has been rendered holy by the presence of the Lord. That's who is here. And yet he has tied himself so intimately to these people that he calls himself by their name. This is his grace. This is why I said earlier that the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their seed after them is one-sided. It is a gift. It is God gives. 
not what man must do for God, but what God has done for man, what God has done for his people through this promise. It is then, that's why it's so important to say the covenant Lord, because this is his identity, this is who he is, this is how we understand him in relationship to us. This is how he wants to be known. He wants to be known to you by this covenant, approached to you by virtue of this covenant, approached by you, rather, by virtue of this covenant. And so when we say the covenant Lord comes down, then we need to say even more specifically who this is, that this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and this Lord of the covenant who has come down for you who has come down for you. The covenant Lord remembers, the covenant Lord comes down, and the covenant Lord delivers. We'll see that first by considering verses 11 and 12, where we see the promise that the Lord will be with you. Moses asks, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It's a a not unreasonable question to be asking. Here's this thing, here's here's God himself telling him, this is what you're going to do. You are going to be my agent for delivering my people. And so who am I? Who am I to do this? Now, Now we understand, we ought to understand intuitively what Moses is asking. Could you please explain what my qualifications are? Because I don't get it. Who am I? that I should be the one to do this. Now, what's interesting is the Lord's answer. Uh, and, and, and he answers, it's a two-part answer. Uh, he says, I shall be with you, and then he gives him a sign. We'll get back to the sign in a moment. I just want to focus in on that peculiar answer. Who am I? To which the Lord says, I will be with you. And just sit on that for a second. It's not, it's not who Moses is, right? Now, the answer we're looking for, who am I, is, well, Moses' resume. And you have heard Moses' resume, I'll bet you, if you've been going to church for any given period of time. What is Moses' resume? Well, he's a son of the Levites, right? So he's a Hebrew, Hebrew of Hebrews, he's from the tribe of Levi. Uh, and, and so that means he was circumcised on the eighth day, so that's good. So he's like Paul in that regard, but we'll leave Paul aside. He's New Testament. Uh, but, that's, and then, but then he was, raised by, he was raised in the household of Pharaoh, so he gets all the education of a son of Pharaoh, and he, is, and he, he learns all the wisdom of the Egyptians, as is pointed out a couple times in the New Testament about his background. So it's valid to point to that resume. He knows a lot, and, and if you've seen any of the v- movie versions, we also know that he's tall and very handsome and is, is uh, you know, good at fighting and stuff, um, like as good as Yul Brynner, uh, because there's only really one movie version. Uh, but anyway... So we know all that stuff, and also, now he's been walking around herding sheep for 40 years, and so everybody will tell you, like, well, herding sheep is a lot like leading a congregation, and so because sheep bite, I swear, I never want to hear that again. Uh, but, that's, but that's, right, but that's, that, that's, that's, that's Moses' resume, right? So he totally knows all the stuff he knows how to deal with, he's got a great resume, and you should hire him to be the deliverer of God's people. 
and the Lord doesn't care about any of it, apparently. Because he says, I will be with you. Your qualification, Moses, is that I will be with you. Who is Moses? Moses is the one with whom God is. That's who Moses is. That's what matters. Not his background. Not his experience. Not the fact that he's 80 years old and has seen a lot of things and done a lot of things. Rather, that the Lord is with him. And it's worth making the connection then, beloved. Who are you? Well, you are the one with whom the Lord is. We have a, as the call to worship reminded us, we have a high priest who is exactly like you, who's been tempted every way like you, so that you can come to him. So we can draw near to him without fear. The Lord is with you. The Spirit, the Spirit who comes down in fire at the burning bush and who led the Israelites across the wilderness in fire and who brought and, and who came down on top of Mount Horeb later on, Mount Horeb, which is also Sinai, in fire and flame and thunder. The Spirit who comes down in fire in the book of Acts, that Spirit is in you as a Christian. Our Lord Jesus Christ is with you. That is your confidence when you're called to obey the Lord in whatever way it is that you're called to obey the Lord in that given circumstance. Who am I? How can I do this? How can I possibly withstand temptation? How can I possibly do the right thing under this circumstance as when, when the right thing is just plainly not the solution that's going to work. There may be many solutions to this problem, but the right thing is not one of them. The Lord is with you. That is who you are, someone with whom God is, and therefore that is why you do what he tells you to do. You don't need any other reason than that, and Moses didn't need any other reason than that. But he does give him a sign. And that's why it's important to underscore here, then, that the Lord will deliver his people from bondage, from slavery, into worship. That's what he says. He's, he's going to take them out of oppression, out of the bondage, and into the promised land. That's part of that covenant that he made with Abraham that uh, I will give you the land of your sojournings. And, and I mean, to, to really understand what he meant, then you have to read the whole book of Genesis, and we don't have time for that this morning. But Abraham was a wanderer. Uh, he, 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 did never, he, he never settled down in one place. He lived in tents, even though he had vast wealth. That wealth was primarily in livestock who just went around with him. And he sojourned. Uh, but he sojourned throughout the land of Canaan. That's the land that is now going to be given as a permanent home to the people of Israel, and himself will in time be called Israel itself. It's, it's also known as the promising, because the land that was promised to them. And so that's where they're going to go. But of course, what we understand now, what we understand now is that all of that, all of that is merely a foreshadowing 
a type, a picture of the greater deliverance, of the greater promise that God was making to Abraham when he says, I will be God to you and to your descendants after you. Because what we have been promised is not just land, but rather deliverance, not from slavery, but from sin. That the Son of God, who came down to deliver his people in Exodus chapter 3, is the Son of God who came down in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke to be born of a virgin as an infant who came down not in fire and glory but as a human being one of you tempted in every way like you but without sin so that the Son of God could go to the cross to deliver you from the greatest oppression the power of sin and death so that those who believe in him may have everlasting life and may not perish. Because, of course, the sin, the sin which tempts you, which lures you, into which you fall so often is an offense against this holy God, this God who makes the ground itself holy and is worthy of his condemnation. And so this God who makes the ground holy became one of us, to die in your place on the cross and to be raised on the third day, not so that you could go to the land of Canaan, but so that you may be raised with him on the last day and be with him everlastingly in the new heavens and the new earth. God delivers his people out of bondage and into the promised land. God delivers his people out of the slavery of sin and death and into everlasting life with him, which is to say God delivers his people in order to worship him. Something that we lose track of, we often lose sight of, and maybe it's because the movie versions never bring this to the forefront, is what, ver- what the Lord says to Moses in verse 12. This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The purpose of the Exodus, then, is that the Lord is worshipped on Mount Horeb by his people. That's the purpose and that's why they go there first to Mount Horeb. They don't go first to the Promised Land. You think that's what, if that was the purpose, they would go directly there. That's not the, they'll go directly to Canaan. They don't go to Canaan. They go to Sinai. They go to Horeb to worship the Lord because that's the purpose of the Exodus. But now, I want you to put yourself back in Moses' shoes for a second. Moses asks, who am I? And God gives him two particularly unhelpful answers, right? One, I will be with you. Well, that's not what I was asking, but okay, okay, I guess that's somewhat reassuring. But then two, here's the sign that I have sent you. 
after you've done the job for which I've sent you, you're going to come to Horeb. Again, put yourself in Moses's. I was going to say, I did say Moses' shoes. He's not wearing any. Um, put yourself in his situation and just ask yourself, how is that helpful? But of course, that's the point. God is with him. God is with him, and so therefore he's going to be capable to do the thing that God has called him to do. And there will be a confirmation. The sign actually will come after he's completed the job because it's simply a confirmation that will underscore everything that he's been doing all along, that you will come into my presence and you shall worship me on this mountain, that the people of God will worship me on this mountain. It's the sign that God has been with them, that God has been delivering them, that it is the Lord, it is their Lord who is at work in their lives, it is their Lord who is leading them, is that they end up in worship. It is the sign of God's work. How do you know that you belong to the Lord? How do you know that God remembers you? How do you know that God has not just made promises, but has made promises to you? How do you know that God will fulfill His promises to you? It's because you worship Him. It's because you worship Him. How do I know any of this is true. I don't experientially, in my own personal experience, know it's true. I won't know it's true. I won't know the promises of God and Christ are true until the resurrection. The resurrection has begun in Jesus Christ, but it has not yet ended because we're here and we're suffering. But on the last day, as we confess in the Nicene Creed and as we confess with all the saints who have gone before us and who are around the world today worshiping him, on the last day, we will rise up with him in order to worship him. The new heavens and the new earth, beloved, will be characterized by worship. And what we do today, then, as we draw near to God through Jesus Christ, our high priest, what we do today is a foretaste of what we shall be doing for all eternity. That the last thing, the eschaton, has, is present now. You were redeemed. You were redeemed not to have a good life. You were not redeemed so that you could avoid suffering. You were not redeemed so that people in the world could look at you and say, there is a successful person, I want to be like him or her. You were not redeemed for any of those reasons. You were redeemed 
to worship Jesus Christ. Now and forever, forever and now. What is the sign that you have been delivered? It's that you worship the Lord. Worship is a particularly useless act. It doesn't get you anything. I mean, what do you get? And also then you like you kick in 10% of your income. I mean, there's no, there is no benefit, personal benefit to what we do here for you, except that you cannot do otherwise. And the fact that it is the most natural thing for you to do to show up on a Sunday to hear God speak through his word, to pray to him, and to sing his praises is proof, is proof that you have been delivered. And so what we will have in glory is simply an extension of what we have now. Because, beloved, worship is why the Lord redeemed you, and worship is a sign that the Lord has redeemed you. You see, beloved, the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. You may not think so. But what are the promises of God in Jesus Christ? It is, they are, that in him you have been redeemed, you have been saved from your sin, that by his Spirit you have been united to him, that by his Spirit, by his power, by the power of his resurrection on the third day, that the resurrection will come to full fruition on the last day. The Lord remembers you, and he has made those promises to you. And in faithfulness to his promises, he brings you into his worship every Lord's day because he remembers you. And therefore, beloved, if you want to know, if you want to know, does the Lord remember you, then fulfill the sign. Fulfill the sign of his promise, of his remembrance, of his remembrance. Fulfill the sign. Sing with glad and full hearts, beloved, for this is a sign that Jesus Christ has redeemed you, that you worship him. Amen. Our Lord, we give you thanks then for your great mercies, for we are a people who groan and cry out. And so we thank you for your spirit that we may continue and that we do continue to groan and to cry out and have ever greater confidence that you will hear us, that you do remember us, that you have acted and will continue to act on our behalf. Hasten the day, our Lord. Hasten the day when the sign shall be brought to fulfillment, shall be brought to its full and perfect eschatological fulfillment. But now, our Lord, we give you great thanks that the sign is here, for our presence together is that sign. And so by your Spirit, and because of our redemption in Jesus Christ, we pray and we give you thanks that we worship you in spirit and in truth, world without end. 
Amen.